This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Kian Ga to talk about her book, Form and Flow, The Spatial Politics of Urban Resilience and Climate Justice. Kian is Assistant Professor of Urban Planning in the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, thank you very much for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. My pleasure. Happy to be here. And uh, thank you for thank you for that introduction. Oh, anytime. So before we kind of dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Of course. So I am, as you said, an assistant professor of urban planning at UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. And my research is on the relationships between urban ecological design, spatial politics, and uh, climate change and global urbanization. So I usually look at the ways in which urban regions are changing because uh, and, and have to change because of climate change and the political contestations, the conflicts that arise because of what cities think they have to do in response to climate change and what other ideas um, might, might, might be on offer among community groups or other constituents in those cities. Great. And so as I hinted at before we kind of went live, this is, you know, I think this is the 46th or 48th episode. And I don't believe we've, I've talked with anyone about the idea about climate justice, even though it's a pretty prevalent concept we're dealing with nowadays. So, of course, that's a very big, vague question, but could you elaborate a little bit for our listeners about climate justice? Yeah, certainly. And and so I, I will say for, first before I do that, so I come to this after uh, about a decade or so of practice in architecture and urban design. And so, you know, and, and your your listeners might might well be interested in this. So 
I spent that decade designing buildings and in, in mostly in and around New York City. And one of the things that I realized, you know, I love architecture, but one of the things that I realized is that I was increasingly interested in the contexts in which these buildings uh, 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 were in. So the, the political histories and the environmental histories of these often uh, very complex neighborhoods. And so designing the buildings is great, but I wanted to spend more time uh, looking at how these urban areas came to be uh, how they were. And this, this picked up even more as we became more and more aware of the, uh, the urgencies of climate change, which puts additional pressure on all neighborhoods, but oftentimes neighborhoods that were home to some of the most marginalized groups in cities, largely poor working class folks or and or communities of color uh, in, in urban regions. And so that really made me think more about the, the, the ways in which um, issues of design and spatial planning intersect with these histories of marginalization and the new challenges that are posed by climate change. So I'll, I'll say that as, as, an intro, as, a, as a context to how I will talk about climate justice. And I think it's a, yeah, and I think it's a really good question because what, you know, especially now, and I'm saying this just as uh, leaders and uh, and organizers, activists around the world are gathering at the UN COP meeting to in Glasgow to try to think about what we all can do collectively to take on you know possibly the biggest problem we've ever had to take on. And one of the themes that is often brought up, especially by community organizers and activists at these. Uh, UN COP meetings is around climate justice. And so they make the point that, you know, that climate, climate change happens to all of us. It's happening everywhere, but it impacts those who have been least responsible for the problems of climate change, the emission, the, the historical uh, carbon emissions that we have to deal with, those least responsible for those emissions are going to be first and most impacted. So largely poor people in the global south, poor people in, in, in countries all around the world are least responsible for the problems we face and they will be impacted most by things like stronger storms, sea level rise, uh, heat island impact, uh, urban heat island impacts, and things like that. So, so, so that's the 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 basic idea of 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 climate justice that we need to think harder about who's uh, who will be most impacted, and 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 whether you know, and and whether they have very much blame at all in what we've we've had we have to encounter what we have to take on. So one of the things that I think, and I'll stop in a little bit, but one of the things that I think is really interesting is how climate justice activists have taken on the concerns of environmental justice that we've now seen and, and thought about 
for probably about 50 years or more now. And in in these conversations about environmental justice, uh, practitioners and scholars were largely focused on the kinds of harms that were visible, that were locationally close to some of these uh, marginalized and oppressed groups. So for instance, having, uh, having waste incinerators or, or coal mining plants or things like that close to poor, uh, to poor people, to, to poor communities of color were some of the earliest ideas about environmental justice that people who have already been oppressed are are even more uh, uh, affected because of uh, where we put environmental harms. So what climate justice activists have done all around the world really is to take these environmental justice concerns and really expand it and extend it to take on some of the dynamics of climate change. So this includes, for instance, the fact that uh, climate climate harms are now global and transcend scale. So like the, the example, for instance, about uh, people in low-lying islands around the world being the first people to have to really suffer the consequences of climate change uh, because of things that that have been done halfway around the world often and across the last 300 years. And so the, the, the climate justice activists have said, look, these are things that are not confined to local places. And these are things that that have to be thought of as, as a historical uh, issue over the last 300 years of, of carbon emissions. And I think that that, that idea, and, and, and scholars have, have written about things like ecological debt, for instance, that idea has really, I think, reset how we think about injustice and, and environment. So climate justice for me needs to take into account uh, the ways in which the the harms of these uneven uh, and disparate environmental problems have been um, recast over the, the the scale of the, the the globe and and across generations and and in fact centuries. Interesting. It's an interesting point, and thank you for that answer, by the way. And it's an interesting point about you know the, who, those who are least responsible are the first to suffer. And uh, one thing that's interesting that I never really thought of, again, while reading the book, there's the, the term of resilience. You know, it's not only in the title, but it comes out throughout the book. And you bring up a good point about the fact that there's a lot of groups that actually are very resistant to being labeled resilient. And I've, I can't speak for everyone. I know I, at first, when reading that, was very confused by that. However, it, it's then made the point that resilience as a term can actually be another way that these groups are marginalized. And so again, I'm going to pretend like I didn't read those parts. Could you explain to us how that could be the case? I'd like to think other people were confused by that as well. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. So resilience has really taken off in the last, I would say, 14, 15 years or so, uh, as a kind of theme or or characteristic. So people ascribe resilience to 
to people and places that are able to bounce back from different shocks and stresses. And and this this theme of resilience has really taken off, partly because I think the the support by by pretty powerful actors, including you know like the the Rockefeller Foundation that for many years has has funded uh, work around resilience, and as well by government agencies like USAID that often takes up the theme of resilience in their work. And you know on the face of it, you might well many folks might say, well, what's wrong with that? It seems. Um, perfectly acceptable and in fact good to to have people and places be able to bounce back when things go wrong and on 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 one hand you know i would totally agree with that you know it it's better for people to be able to bounce back than to not get up at all but i think one of the the dangers in accepting this theme without uh you know without question is that it's often invoked to, to imply that people can bounce back uh, regardless of what happens. And it's, it's often used to say that, well, you know, these, these um, poor communities, these marginalized communities, you know, look how resilient they are. They're able to bounce back. Let's not worry too much about, uh, about them. Or on another, uh, an, another aspect of this, is that resilience bound and and especially in the in the concept of bouncing back, uh, is suggests that well we will bounce back to where we were before, and if we think about the climate crisis right now, where we were before got us into this crisis, uh, where we were before got us into growing inequality in cities. And, and and the breakdown of, of ecological systems. So why would we want to bounce back to to the kinds of conditions that got us into this mess in the first place? So those those are two, I think, um, questionable aspects of resilience. And I will say that having done this research, my interest is in trying to 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 really well, not necessary to reclaim, but but maybe to reconsider how resilience can be more just, how resilience can be pra- maybe practiced from the, the, the perspective and the point of view of some of these marginalized groups. And as I write about in, in the book, uh, we do see how community organizations on the ground often look to their own concept of resilience. And I give one example about the Red Hook Initiative in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where as their founding executive director, Jill Eisenhardt says, they used to talk about resilience way before, in, in this case, way before Hurricane Sandy hit in, uh, in 2012. And for them, Resilience was this idea of having the individual strength or motivation to to get up when life knocks you down. And so the Red Hook Initiative works largely with youth who live in public housing, in the Red Hook houses in Brooklyn. And so resilience is the ability for, for these individuals, these youth to be able to get up 
But as Jill, as Jill Eisenhardt reminds me, you know, it's also that they have a social support network to help them do it uh, if they can't do it for themselves. And this social support network comes from a history of working together uh, to create these, these cohesive, these uh, resilient social networks. So it's beyond the individual. It's about a community that has had to face similar parallel struggles of living in, in uh, a public housing system that is often, uh, that often lacks the proper investment that has to deal with uh, gentrification around the neighborhood and, and being, being often like pushed out of their places and have had to deal with the lack of transportation or the lack of open space and recreational areas in their neighborhood. So the, this, this shared struggle in a particular place actually informs, I think, uh, this notion of, of a collective resilience. Very interesting. And so, again, a, a lot of great stuff, and we kind of haven't even gotten into the kind of the overall organization of the book. And so my understanding is the book is kind of broken up into these three main points that you are, mentioned are kind of the, the, the focus of climate politics. And please correct me if I'm mistaken here. They are being, and I'm going to mispronounce this, contestation, flows, and then plans and counterplans. And so I know that that's a big question, but could you walk us through, I guess, for example, contestation? I know there, there's a lot of interesting points about that in the book that I don't think a lot of people might think of. Could you walk us through some of the discussions you bring up on that? Yes, thank you. That's a really good prompt. And so I'll try to do this fairly briefly because I know that I can go on a little no, bit. No, no, take your time. <laughs> uh, so the book, the book is indeed it's 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 framed around these three lenses to to see what's going on, and you know you haven't said and and so I I should I should say this that that the book revolves around these three lenses, and it's also looking at three different sites, and so these sites are uh, New York City, mainly looking at issues post Hurricane Sandy in twenty twelve. Uh, I also look at Jakarta in Indonesia and and the and the constant floods that the city faces, and I trace a lot of these uh, the conflicts and contestations back to Rotterdam and 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 large and and the Netherlands more broadly, and I do this because you know when I one of the things that I realized when I started some of this research. Is that you know you you cannot spend uh, much time at all looking at the problem of climate change and politics in any of these cities and not be uh, uh, be drawn to some of the interconnections uh, in, and the flows of ideas and influence among them. So spending some time in Jakarta, for instance, you know, you you inevitably uh, find yourself talking about or talking with Dutch consultants who are there working on water management plans, and and the same is in is is true in New York. It's true in actually in many places around the world now. Uh, certainly in New Orleans, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, uh, in Ho Chi Minh City, in Vietnam, where 
uh, groups of international consultants, oftentimes of Dutch origin, are on the ground, uh, sometimes embedded in the state agencies, trying to figure out solutions to the kinds of environmental problems that they face. So that that is that that really made me think about well, how do I take on such a such a complex and multi-sided problem? You know, one way would be to say, okay, I will look at these separately. I'll look at New York, I'll look at Jakarta, I'll look at Rotterdam, and try to tease out, you know, similar similarities and differences. And this is a kind of classic scholarly move, a kind of, a comparative analysis. But what struck me is that these are not sites to be compared because there's so much flow between them, so many interconnections that what's more important than seeing them in comparison to, to the other place is seeing them in relation to, the, to those other places. And so how do you keep, and, and this is a tricky thing when you try to, to consider various sites in relationship to each other, things tend to move around a lot. You look at one place and you realize that you can only understand what happens in that place by looking at another place. You go there to this other place. And once you start talking to people there, you realize that, well, there are other things at play. So it's a very dynamic way to look at the world, but I thought it was necessary to understand what was going on. And so the three broad lenses that I've used in the book to understand better what's going on, contestation, flows, and plans and counterplans was an, a way to, to situate and to frame the research in a way that was easier, or, or well, easier is not the right way to say it, was more effective to really take on these complexities and these flows and understand what was going on. So that that's the 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 big picture, and uh, yeah. and so so more more specifically about about uh, each of these lenses. So contestation is really about the ways in which um, uneven social and environmental outcomes in cities must be traced to his, the history of power relationships in these cities. So you look at a place like New York, New York City, you look like at a place at, like Jakarta, and you know, like you might think, oh, there are uh, poor people who are unfortunately in these sites that are going to be impacted first by sea level rise. Like, too bad, that seems like, we see that all around the world, you know, too bad. But if you look more carefully at how they got there in the first place, you see that, you know, the ways that we have organized and reorganized our cities at each moment had to do with who had power at that point and what decisions were they making uh, to organize open space, to organize uh, housing, to organize um the distribution of water or other utilities. And those divisions at those moments oftentimes put uh, uh, poor people and communities of color in these more vulnerable places. 
And so, and the the interesting now is that many of these sites that used to be vulnerable places are also uh, places in cities where the city officials or uh, or developers would would like to reclaim and to build out as new and often luxury neighborhoods. Even surprisingly, because uh, they, they, they also tend to be by the water's edge and they have to be protected by protected from from imminent sea level rise and storm surge. But that's what's happening. So basically, uh, we have to look at historical power relationships to understand the conflicts that have taken place in cities and how they, they've come to look the way they are now. And then for flows, you know, I, I noted, I suggested some of this before in how I even started looking at uh, the, the multiple sites involved in this book. And, and it's about the fact that when we look at what cities are doing in response to climate change, we cannot understand them only in terms of what the city is doing in its own municipal boundaries. We have to understand it uh, first as uh, at least a regional issue. So looking at uh, issues around the watershed uh, or the infrastructural region, of these cities, so how is it a regional problem and not simply a matter of, uh, of of one or a few cities? But I think as important, if not more so, how these plans, these actions that are being proposed for one city or other, is often connected to a global network of institutions, of organizations that have emerged over time to. Uh, to to plan and to plan for in different places and to also share knowledge around in this case climate change problems and how best to take them on as well as to uh, to ease the flow of global capital so that these different projects can happen in cities around the world so it's a very multi-level issue as well as a multi-scalar one and tracing the motivations of safety from climate impacts of continued uh, capital accumulation and of these new institutions of global uh, development are i think critical to really seeing uh, how these plans are being uh, are being put together and and what their impacts might be on the ground in these specific places. And then lastly, I'll quickly talk about plans and counterplans. So my, my background is in design and architecture and urban design. And I was really interested in how design was being used to, to make the point and to make an argument about about these uh, climate plans. So you look at some of the, the major plans around uh, to, to, to deal with environmental problems in cities. And I, I point to one in, in, in particular in the book called the Giant Seawall Master Plan that, uh, that, was, uh, that was proposed for Jakarta around 2013, 2014. And 
I, I, I point out how design in this proposal was used to try to, uh, to make it to, to connect uh, a plan that was largely authored by Dutch consultants, so Dutch uh, engineers, Dutch landscape architects and urban designers, how to make this meaningful to the residents of Jakarta and, and of Indonesia more broadly. And so the, the plan is shaped like a giant eagle that, that is actually to be built on landfill uh, in the Jakarta Bay. And this giant eagle is, is supposed to be reminiscent of the great Garuda, which is the national symbol for, for Indonesia. So the designers, and the, the, in this case, use design to try to appeal to, to the histories of that place and to the, to, to the cultural, uh, to, the, to, to, to the culture and the, the symbols of that place. And, you know, what I found is that it, it works and it doesn't work both ways. It's, it, you know, on the one hand, it does turn it into a more imageable and more understandable vision. But on the other hand, it, it often doesn't connect well enough to some of the social and political problems on the ground. So design might be a kind of like first cut, um, look, here's something that appeals to history and culture in a place, but it sometimes doesn't go far enough, well, often doesn't go far enough to, tr to really connect to the soci sociopolitical conditions on the ground. And so there was a lot of pushback among, uh, among community activists in Jakarta to this uh, giant seawall plan because you know it it may it may appeal to to Indonesian culture on the one hand, but it really doesn't uh, uh, take on take on the issues of inequality, for instance, or the fact that the people most at risk from the floods in Jakarta are uh, uh, poor urban residents living in the informal kampong settlements, these, these urban villages, and they are at risk of being evicted and their homes demolished with uh, not a lot of recourse sometimes. And so in the book, I actually look at how uh, organizers in the kampong, so these kampong activists have fought back against the what they consider to be oppressive plans uh, or oppressive city actions that would demolish their homes and evict them, and they've uh, they've produced their own plans that would allow them to remain in place while reshaping their settlements to to become a more uh, a higher density uh, but still socially attuned uh, kampong kampong design, and so I point out how design in this case, can also be part of the, the, the counter plans against these dominant visions and how an appeal to design on the part of uh, political, of, of these community activists can in fact, the design can in fact be a part of a political campaign. So if we think, for instance, about how activists largely have political campaigns, well, design can be part of making the point. 
and and coming up with concrete concrete uh, proposals that can be used to negotiate with or to to make claims on a particular um, neighborhood or a particular riverfront, as it were. So, of course, we've only scratched the surface. So much more we could cover. But as I often say, and I don't want to keep you here for the rest of the day. So thank you. I think that's a very good, you know, overview of everything. And I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, is it? <laughs> thank you, Brian. It's my pleasure. Yeah, as I, as, I, as I said before, you know, I can, of course, go on for quite a bit. But I really appreciate your questions and also the 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 chance to really uh to to talk a little bit about this and 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 hopefully you know entice folks to to want to know the story better i think these are these are the kinds of problems that we will face more more and more in the coming years and i think being able to see these places in their complex histories and to be able to then step away and see the the broader interconnected geographies. Of course, are uh, that's important to me, and I hope we can continue these kinds of conversations in the future. I hope so as well. And for everyone listening, the book is Form and Flow: The Spatial Politics of Urban Resilience and Climate Justice. I, I would recommend checking it out. And so, I want to thank everyone for listening, and hope everyone has a great day. <laughs>